HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company, America's leading salt maker. Learn more at jacobsonsalt.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N salt.com. Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering the sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time. And producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, then I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes, it's out there and, and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. Subscribe to the Feed Feed wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. 
This week on the show, we are joined by Amelia Nuremberg, a journalist for the New York Times. She was kind enough to join us to talk about an amazing article that she wrote about widows and their experiences with cooking and food and eating and mealtime. We also just want to say this week and acknowledge that there was a great loss in uh, the sports world and in the entertainment community of Kobe Bryant. And I think it really sent shockwaves through, you know, our kind of global community because it's such a tragic thing when anyone passes uh, expectedly or unexpectedly. And I think that there's something about uh, our idols and people that we hold in esteem and people that we feel like have made it to a certain level and we admire them that is just it it's a visible loss that we can all see and experience at one time and it doesn't necessarily make the loss any more profound than any other human life but it is something that we mourn as a community and it forces us to all kind of think about our own situations and our own mortality and it's very sad and so we just want to acknowledge that and send our condolences out and we hope that you enjoy this episode of Processing with Amelia Nuremberg. Thank you. Hello, Bobby. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm really okay. Pretty What's good. Going on? Well, I'm not going to get into the fact that I was at a funeral last week at this time, but oh. that's true. My father-in-law died. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I'm other sorry. than that, I'm really good. And I'm glad to be here. Okay. Well, I'm glad to see you. And we're joined today by an amazing guest, Amelia Nuremberg who is the author of an amazing uh, article that just came out in the New York Times that was sent around to both Bobby and I by various people. I think I got the article sent to me like 25 times, and it's an amazing <laughs> article um, entitled... For Many Widows, the Hardest Part is Mealtime. Yes. I think. <laughs> that is it. <laughs> We've all been pondering, as though we don't have access to the internet, our own notes right, right, right. Um, about the name in question. But I think like the name is actually the least important part and the most important part was what the message of it was, which really is just exactly what we talk about on this mm-hmm, show mm-hmm. about, you know, truly uh, the intersection of food and grief. And, um, you know, not that when we started this show that I thought in any way was food and grief uh, some kind of new revelation, revelatory idea. Uh, or concept, but um, the more that I've been thinking about it, the more I see it. Maybe it's like when you think, you know, the, the uh, theory that when you think about things a lot, they cultivate. Yeah, and yeah you, you manifest them. them. You manifest yeah. them, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, I was really it, so excited to see this, and it was so beautiful and beautifully written and thoughtful. And, and very comprehensive. It really was a deep dive into the bereavement process, Thank as you. I see it, too. Yeah. So when we initially spoke the other day, I had so many questions for you just over the phone. (laughs) I was getting so excited just chatting with you because I just feel like we're on the same wavelength about this. And, uh, you know, can you tell me like a little bit about your like upbringing? Like, have you experienced a loss at some point along the way that made you think of this? Like what really led you to this point? For sure. I grew up, I grew up in New York and I, when I started the job at the food section of the times, um, was trying to think about stories that were food adjacent but not food direct in mm. part because I don't really have a culinary background and was thinking my grandparents were if not my primary parents at least my co-parents both my parents worked pretty crazy hours and my granddad died when I was seven mm. and I was thinking about that um, my gra- my grandmother's a huge cooking influence in my life she was an amazing cook and for a while after he died there wasn't she wasn't cooking very much 
we weren't cooking that much together. And, and the foods that were in the house were basically kid friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, when I was thinking about food adjacent stories, I thought about that moment and, and just how hard it was for her to find joy in something that she had once really loved. Yeah. Um, did you talk to your grandmother about that at the time? Or I'm not sure if she's still with us. Yeah, yeah. She, she is. is. Okay. Yeah. Did you speak with her like before you decided to write this article? She actually suggested it. Oh. Yeah. She, we were talking about, I, I was saying, you know, I, I want to do, thinking about stories, Nana, do you have any ideas? And she said, well, no one cooks after their husband dies. Wow. And a lot of her friends, she was one of the first people to lose a partner in her circle. Yeah. And it's been something she's noticed and I've noticed with all of her friends, one after another, they just close up their kitchens for years. Wow, um, that's right. Yeah, a lot of it is is not wanting to um, celebrate. Really, it's hard to celebrate. Exactly. Totally. And, and when people love food, it's part of their celebration of life. Yeah. I had a really interesting conversation with someone last night. I was chatting with a good friend of mine mm-hmm. who is trying to get pregnant and not mm-hmm. been able to. And we're the same age. I'm 35. She's 35. Um, and I'm 35 and I'm single and can't seem to like get it together. (laughs) I just can't seem to find the right man. But, um, in all seriousness, like we were talking about how it can often feel like, you know, you're not part of a certain club, right? Like, so the club of like women in their thirties who have kids or the club of men who want to be whatever, or Mm -hmm. any type of person who feels like they should be somewhere and they're not. And I actually kind of related that to the same thing about you know what especially when you were just saying once the husband dies and like she was the first one in her group yeah. whose husband died right yeah so it's kind of like oh I'm not really part of this club anymore so maybe I don't deserve to have this thing you know similarly like I could just speak for myself being someone who's single feeling like oh well I I'm a single person so I don't deserve to go out to dinner I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't ascribe to this but I'm just saying like mm-hmm. you know I don't deserve to go to dinner or I can't go to a movie because I'm a one or I shouldn't do this and I do all those things of course but like right. it's hard I, and I think part of that with w- women or men or anyone who loses a partner or is widowed mm-hmm. um, it must feel a little bit I would assume it kind of must feel a little bit like they are no longer part of something. They feel like a fifth wheel. They often talk about going out to dinner being really hard, you know, feeling like the fifth wheel and who's going to pay the bill and conscious that other people want to treat them and they want to feel independent. Right. Yeah. And a, another thing is really and I think you mentioned this in your article mm-hmm. is that um, if their partner isn't here, their spouse isn't here, then they feel like they don't deserve to do those things. Like if they mm-hmm. enjoyed Japanese food together. Right. And I say, well, I don't want to do that anymore because now he can't do it or she can't do it. I think that's another part of why they feel so left out of things. Right. It, it, the That was something that really surprised me in the conversations I had mm-hmm. was how social this part of grief can be. Yes. Because, you know, your group of four couples, suddenly there are seven of you. Mm-hmm. And the person that, you know, did the other couples don't know if they're going to make them feel bad by inviting them. You don't want to go out and have to drive home alone from a favorite restaurant. Um, one of the women I interviewed was this very good cookbook writer named Lori Burroughs Grad. And she said that she had been demoted to lunch. Uh-huh. Um, right, right. Which I thought was good just point. such a clear encapsulation of what it's like to to be amputated from your social partner. Yeah. A client told me recently that, um, you know, for her, she felt like it wasn't even lunch, it's coffee. And she yeah. said it makes it easier because then yeah. I don't have to think about any of the aspects of 
my past relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, eating has all kinds of different meanings to everybody. I think we'd like to tend to think that eating and cooking is joyful. And I think most of, hopefully most of the time it is. And mm-hmm. if it's not like purely joyful for people, it's at least bonding, right? It's something that we can do either as a community or with a partner or with like your children or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I don't know, one of the things about grief when you lose someone, especially if it's that partner where you get to, you get to just unwind or celebrate with it's so it's so terrible to have that part of your life shaken up right and I think it's everyday life it's everyday life yeah Yeah. Yeah. and it's so much more what I thought was interesting about your article is just it's one of those things I think because we live in a culture where we don't talk that much about grief and Mm -hmm. I think we are starting to more and more Mm -hmm. but um you're not prepared for it you're not prepared for you don't think about you because you don't want to think about it right Right. like you don't want to think about how could this, like, how is my everyday life going to be mixed up? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just, it's one of those glaringly awful, unfair things about loss that just feels like, well, this too? You know what I mean? I have to be yeah. heartbroken all the time, but also now <laughs> I can't even enjoy Things I used to eating? be used to enjoy. This is so fucked up. Like, it's, <laughs> it's unfair. It's unfair. Yeah. yeah. And we don't, like, think about it a lot. So I, I really, like your article was wonderful and very important because it really like allows people to look at something that is I think important to face and useful to face Mm -hmm. before you actually have to come to terms with that loss because it can give you maybe a little bit of a chance to think about it and and plan for it a little bit not that you can ever plan what your grief will look like but I don't know what do you think yeah I mean I think that when we think about what grief looks like A lot of people told me I knew I was going to have to get rid of her clothes. Mm. I knew that I was going to have to re-record the voicemail. I knew that I was going to have to transfer the bills. Um, And and I think that those are the physical manifestations of sudden singleness. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew I was going to waste half the milk I used to buy. That's not something that you think about, in part Mm because, as you say, it's such a taboo. And in part because because there's this social alienation element of grief, no one tells anyone about what it's like. Um, one of the grief counselors I spoke to said, you know, no, people are asking, are you sleeping? But no one's asking, are you eating? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so obvious. Everyone eats that you just don't, if it doesn't happen to you, you don't realize it's going to happen. Totally. I've run a lot of uh, bereavement groups in my career. And one of the things we would always do is say, anybody cook for themselves this week Mm. and when somebody would say i made some salmon we would all cheer because it had (laughs) to do with self-care yeah it had to you know and that's the part you you deny yourself in a way when you have a loss of somebody you love they abandon you and you abandon yourself Mm -hmm. and it's i mean it's it's also just such a sensual thing you eat, to eat, you have to be so present to your own body. Yes. And whatever your religious belief, when someone dies, they are not present to their own body anymore. Mm, that's so right. So taste, you can't salivate. You can't lick things off your fingers. You can't, right. you know, yeah. feel spice. There are people that don't listen to music anymore. Yeah. You know, and for whatever period of time, or they don't go to a movie, or they don't, they don't want to enjoy life because their partner can't enjoy life. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of a great quote that I have in my office. My office walls filled with quotes because <laughs> I feel like we've all going through this, so we have to share with each other the things that we learn. And the quote has to say it says that life alone this I mean sorry, I'm sorry, time alone does not help us heal. It's the loyalty to life 
that helps us heal. And I think mm. that's what you're talking about. It's yeah. being in all the aspects of life, including the pleasures of life. Right. And, and, and I mean, when you're a couple, especially when you've been a couple for such a long time, especially if you're both aging and you're caring for each other, you share each other's bodies beyond from a sexual perspective. Yeah. But the care and the maintenance and the upkeep, you drive each other to doctor's appointments. And in that sharing, you're sharing food because you eat the same thing yes. with someone every day, three times a day for 40 years. Yeah, that's right. You know, and suddenly you don't, you don't have that link to their body anymore. And it's just... Um, that's a lot of people talk to me about, uh, one woman talked to me about the intimacy of the inside of her mouth. Mm. Um, she didn't want to go on the record, so it's yeah, not a piece. So deep. But, <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I mentioned that my father-in-law died this week, and he was in hospice. I'm sorry. Um, thank you. And it made me think, I worked in hospice for many years, mm -hmm. and I remember part of what happens is that when somebody is dying, they do stop eating. Yes. So mm -hmm. I think for those spouses whose partners died through a long illness process, mm -hmm. that a connection to food has changed already. It's not mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. when they die. It was the whole process of yeah, their dying. of course. And, you know, as their partner stops eating, and they try to, they try to feed, feed them, them even when they can't yeah, eat yeah. because food is life. And Absolutely. And I actually wrote a piece um, that's coming out in a zine in the next couple of months, and it was about feeding my father his last meal, which was a roast beef sandwich. And... Mm. Um, in the piece, I kind of wrote about how I would always... I, he had cancer for, like, 10 years, and I would make him food all the time. I'd go down there. He lived in Nashville. I'd, I'd free, fill his freezer with different things. Mm -hmm. And part of it was like, oh, well, as long as this person is eating, they're not going to die. So I'll make, right. like, a ton of food because right. there's no way he can die. I mean, and obviously that's just, you know, silly kind of uh, fanciful logic. But, like, you know, if there's a whole lasagna, he'll have to live 30 days because there's 30 slices to eat. And, yeah. you know, I think once you kind of see someone stop eating, mm -hmm. it's definitely a, a huge signal that, like, okay, well, this is actually really over. I can't I can't keep doing this anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, and as long as they're eating, they're still alive. And as long as they're still alive, I'm not in pain. You know, it's really, yeah. it's really, really complicated. And you I'm, did a lot of good yeah. research in your article, and I um, appreciated when you were interviewing one of the grief counselors who talked about the stages of grief mm -hmm. and saying that it's really not used anymore. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. And I wanted to bring up um, the concept of the tasks of grief mm -hmm. because I found them interwoven in your article all the way through. So I thought it would be helpful to bring them up because um, it was so much of what you spoke to and the, and the uh, people that you spoke to. So the tasks of grief have more to do with the work we have to do in the grieving process. And the first task is, is working on accepting the reality of the loss. And of course, grief isn't linear. So mm -hmm. the whole time you're working on accepting the reality of the loss. Every time you go into a supermarket and every time you eat a meal, and you're saying to yourself, he's really not here or she's really not here. So that yeah. process, that task of accepting the reality is in our everyday Mm -hmm. The next task is managing the feelings. And I've had many clients tell me that they walk into a supermarket and they, they literally break down in the supermarket and nobody understands why. And they run from the supermarket and Everyone leave there. Everyone I interviewed exactly. said the exact same. Every wow. single person. Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's exactly. the supermarket? I mean, it's, it's so the, hard. It's the minefield. You see something. Yeah. One exactly. woman spoke to me about marshmallows. Her husband loved marshmallows. And she would do like crazy routes throughout the supermarket to avoid, <laughs> to the, avoid marshmallow. the marshmallow. Yeah. The triggers are everywhere. Everywhere. But remember, triggers are the things that help us accept the reality. 
So mm -hmm. we try to avoid them, but they're actually things that help us along the process. Mm -hmm. So the next task is learning to live without that person in the world. And that's exactly what your article is about. Mm -hmm. You know, every time you sit down at the table and every time you think about anything, you're realizing they are not here. And mm -hmm. how am I going to live without them? Mm -hmm. How am I going to make dinner without them? How am I going to have a dinner party without them? How am I going to go to a restaurant without them? Yeah. Um, the next task is um, working through unresolved issues. And, you know, I think you mentioned uh, one of the points in the article was when maybe you had a partner who didn't cook. Yes. Um, or you did all the cooking mm -hmm. or whatever. The, and sometimes there's a resentment or a feeling of, let's say they did all the cooking, but you had all the recipes. You knew how to do everything. I think you yeah. mentioned a gentleman whose wife yeah. um, did all the cooking and he never did. Yeah. So sometimes there is that resentment that comes up too. There's also uh, one of the women I interviewed in the piece named Deborah Stevens lives in South Carolina and she's lost a lot of weight. She, mm -hmm. I think she's lost over 70 pounds. Yeah. And something that she and I spoke about, um, which didn't make it into the article, was how she had been, when her husband was alive, she had felt so guilty for being heavy. Mm -hmm. um, and now that she is thinner and feels more like the person she wanted to look like, mm -hmm. how she feels all this this resentment at, at herself for not having been able to deliver that yeah. version of herself to him. Um, so too for the a couple of people who have gained weight, where they their husbands would always talk to them about how they were bony, right? And wow. suddenly they've yeah. you know they're stress eating, yeah. and they look like the bodies that their partners had wanted, mm. and their partners aren't there for it. It's so moving. It is yeah. moving, and it's also I don't know. It just reminds me how I in my own kind of loss of someone important to me. I think a lot about how it's so hard to have this continuing relationship with a dead person. Yes. So what you're talking about is like, well, I would have been thinner for you or I would have been heavier for you and I don't I'm so upset now that that can't happen anymore that's still continuing this right. like negotiation and this relationship with someone mm -hmm. who's gone and mm -hmm. it is so frustrating because you you realize you catch yourself sometimes realizing that you're having resentment towards them you're having feelings of joy or, or regret yeah. and it's so singular whereas like the relationship doesn't exist anymore where you can say that and tell them you know what I mean but so it, you're, it does it's part of the healing process and in therapy right. You help people continue those things that are unresolved and talk to them and write to them yeah. and have them write back and have yeah. them talk back. So you do continue the, yeah. that relationship. But it is frustrating. It Unless is. you really yeah. do get a handle on it, you yeah. know, like have someone to guide you through it, a therapist, or you do you know some investigation independently on mm -hmm. that. It can be such a frustrating feeling, and it just really struck me to mention that when you're talking about these women feeling you know frustrated by now being what more what their partner had wanted right. in the past. And right. it's just like... It's so hard. That's another thing I think people just really don't talk about and we don't know about grief is having those relationships after death with yeah. people that can be just Absolutely. Fr very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my grandfather loved burnt cookies. <laughs> um, and for I, I think whenever my mom makes cookies, she certainly did this when I was still <laughs> living at home, but she would, she would take most of them out and burn like two or three. Love it. Um, just kind of to yeah. do it and and it's I mean it, that's sort of a, yeah. a happy story but um, mm. a couple two years ago our closest family friend the mom committed suicide oh. and her daughter is and I are very close and she has just started cooking from her mother's recipe book wow. and it's this I'm, I'm gonna it's um it, it's one of the ways that she's been able to heal from the anger of her mom's oh, death and, yeah. and she, you know, making 
this Christmas stew and making the Christmas cake and um, bringing that joy that they shared together back. But it's only two two and a half years after that she's able to do that oh yeah. exactly yeah. it takes it take it if often takes longer. that much time yeah. or longer totally you know the other thing and i think of you are around this one is that sometimes we're angry at our partner because they didn't take care of themselves and maybe yeah. they yeah. overate my dad and that's what brought them to yeah right exactly yeah. And i know you were very upset with your dad during that time well, anger i mean anger after death is just it's a hard thing to deal with mm-hmm. you know i honestly think like the feelings when you think positively about someone after they've passed away Mm -hmm. uh, it's it makes you sad right you're like i miss that but i mean it can make you happy and bring a smile to your face but that is the thing that can hurt seeing something in the supermarket you see the marshmallows you think about your husband who loved them right that is a positive memory in a way but it Mm -hmm. it makes you bitter bitter sweet exactly yeah anger with someone after they've passed because they didn't take care of themselves or such a more living emotion it's so wild and it's so hard to know what to do with it and Mm -hmm. like it, and you're talking about grief not being linear. That's one of the things that I've noticed just in like certain times when, you know, you find, and, and I actually was struck by that when reading your article as well, because it's one of those things I have, I had anger at my dad recently mm-hmm. because I was dating somebody who I think thought that my grief was too much and I felt angry mm-hmm. with my dad. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> now you're like ruining this relationship. And I was like, whoa, I feel so angry. And this is so weird. My dad died almost two years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading articles, like I can really relate to this because I can imagine that a lot of these people who have lost people mm-hmm. can end up feeling like I used to like eating. Right. Fuck you. Yeah. Why did yes. you have to die? Like this yeah. used to be great for me and now you're not here. And you know, maybe it was completely uh, unavoidable thing as most death is, mm-hmm. you know, or, but a lot of times it's not suicide or not taking care of yourself or being careless or, you know, car accident, car accident, all yeah. these things. So, I mean, I think that, I would imagine that a lot of these widowed people must feel at some point, whether they're able to admit it or not, or want to admit it. Mm -hmm. And I guess that doesn't matter, but like there must be a bunch of anger. It's interesting. There is. And I've spoken to a lot of people who are, I mean, the weight loss example is one, but one of the other things that was really surprising to me was I went, I went to a cooking class in the Chicago suburbs and it's for widows it's amazing tell the the audience more about that yeah it's it's called culinary grief therapy it's i think two or three or four two or four um years old and Mm -hmm. it's a it's part group discussion and therapy part culinary grieving where they will bring widows in and people who have lost parents and siblings people who are grieving Mm -hmm. um to learn recipes that are simple and pretty straightforward that they can cook on their own and it's in it looks like a cooking class it's in an industrial kitchen three or four people make a dish together and then it's served buffet style and people talk with each other and a lot of the widows I spoke to in that group have become really really close um shared by food which is one of the most communal ways to make friends and shared by grief which is similarly um incredibly bonding and one of the things that a lot of the folks I spoke I met spoke about was how they p- part of their eating and grieving process was helping them detach from parts of a relationship that were controlling, mm-hmm. where um, 
people would have the experience of going to the grocery store with a list and then stopping and thinking, I actually don't like sausage or I actually don't right. like broccoli. Right. And I've been buying this for you for 35 years and eating it myself for 35 mm-hmm. years. And I don't have to, I never have to do that again. Yeah. Um, and That's the other task of grief. Who am I now? Yeah. Who am I now without you? Yeah. And anger can be a pathway to that Absolutely. as can be everything else. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Anger being a pathway to who am I now, right? Because yeah, even absolutely. in the best of relationships, yeah. even in the most wonderful, loving marriages that have been around forever, there's, of course, I mean, two human beings who are different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most marriage is complicated in some way. And you compromise a lot and you give up things about yourself and you kind of somehow lend your identity so that you, in mm-hmm. a way, lose your identity to some degree, yeah. even though you find a new one. Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, interestingly, I think finding your own identity again through food after a partner dies is an interesting task. Mm-hmm. Did you have any experience with talking to anyone in, about that specifically? Yeah. I mean, the example that yeah. I just brought up, one of the women I spoke to uh, the, the who lives in South Carolina was saying, you know, I'm, I'm no longer Mrs. David Stevens. I'm Debbie Stevens. Right. I don't know who I am. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't talk about that as directly with folks. Mm-hmm. I think that the not not through the lens of food, but more just we were two people who did things together, right. and now I am someone doing them myself. Sure. And you bring up one of the most important things, which is that grief is a process. Mm-hmm. It's not a linear process. It's not a process that has a beginning, middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. I think we grieve our whole lives, mm-hmm. and I think you can be remarried to somebody and and in a happy life and all of a sudden feel something, something triggers you and you're re-grieving and it could be through food certainly. Yeah, you're re-grieving again because we, we, all our losses kind of fall into the same well. And so I think, you know, whenever we experience a loss, we experience all the losses of our life. Yes. Yeah, that is very true. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company. Jacobson's Flake and Kosher Sea Salts have garnered worldwide favor for their beautiful presentation and pure taste. In addition to an extensive assortment of pure sea salts and infused sea salts, Jacobson Salt Company also produces a line of salty confections, honey, cocktail salts, seasonings, gift sets, and other pantry staples. Harvested from the cold, pristine waters of Neatarts Bay on the Oregon coast, Jacobson Salt Company is a favorite amongst professionals and home cooks alike. Founded in 2011, Jacobson Salt Company's mission is grounded in craftsmanship and community, maintaining the vision of providing the very best cooking ingredients, from hand-harvested sea salt to single-origin honey. More information on Jacobson Salt Company and their extensive line of products can be found at jacobsonsalt.com. So I have a question for you. Um, being someone who is a writer and an interested person as a journalist, <laughs> I, you're, I'm assuming you're a journalist because yeah. you're an interested human. You're interested in other humans. But what did you learn? About, what did you take away from writing this that you didn't know before that you think is maybe the most valuable or several things, whatever that may be to you? It's a great question. Um, I think my, something that a maxim of my family is that everyone lives life in quiet desperation, which is maybe not such an uplifting (laughs) maxim to think about, but moving through the world, but just, um, the amount of people who, if I hadn't known they were grieving, I wouldn't know they were grieving, um, was astounding. And I think also 
the length of time that an emotion takes or a state of being can occupy. Um, we have such a like get over it mentality and I'm still close enough to college that my unit of time is the semester. Yeah. Um, and it is it, like people speak about their life in periods of six and 10 years. Um, but I also think that it, it really unromanticized a lot of my perceptions about grief and grieving and, and love and loving, because I think that when, when someone in the immediacy after someone dies, which is mostly how I've interacted with grief, a funeral, a shiva, a wake, right. mourning process, people talk about like the shining golden memories, the time we went on the hike, she always had the laugh. Mm -hmm. and, and people tell someone's story through these like highly saturated anecdotal mm -hmm. experiences. Um, and so I think that the, the way that you're supposed to love if you hear it only from like a eulogy pers perspective is to gather as many like gorgeous memories as possible. So you have this little box of beautiful jewels that you the can pearls. look out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think what this article showed me is how sure the first initial shock months you're thinking about your pearls, but after that you're just thinking about breakfast and, and lunch and cars and bill. And I think that it, it reframed so much of what a relationship actually looks like mm -hmm. and what it looks like. Um, there's, sorry, there's something yeah, like, yeah, there's an earthquake. Happening. Yeah. There's yeah the floor, <laughs> the floor is shaking, but, but just like, you know, if you, if you look at it from the daily perspective of grief, like it changes the way that I look at my partner in our own relationship. Not that I'm thinking about either of us dying mm -hmm. yeah. anytime soon, but just, you know, it's really, really, really nice to wake up next to someone. Yeah. That's probably truer than like the time we went to Morocco, you know? Absolutely. Even though there's numbness and grief, there's also an intense awareness. Yeah. Do you feel like diving into the subject um, has like, will better prepare you for a time when grief will, you know, come upon when you'll be faced with it? Like, do you feel like the fact that you've been able to kind of deep dive into this and speak to yeah. so many folks who have experienced this kind of specific loss, like, do you feel more prepared for tackling this specific angle of like, okay, well, I know that, you know, this can happen and I might be really, you know, triggered and uh, tend to do that? Or do, do you, yeah. does that make sense? It's in a roundabout way, absolutely. Um, my grandma, as I mentioned raised me, um, yeah. al alongside my parents, but mm -hmm. raised me and she's 87 and her, she's totally with it, but her health is the health of an 87 year old. Mm -hmm. And part of what our relationship looks like right now is not really talking about it, but kind of talking about it, preparing for w what happens after it's a different, it's a, you know, dead alive person relationship. Yeah. Anticipatory grief. Exactly. And I think that these conversations have really helped me know that it will be hard to make her recipes for a while. Yeah. And it will be hard to celebrate holidays with her for a while. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, any conversation about grief, I think, prepares everyone for grief because there are so few conversations about grief. It's why I think that yes. what you guys are doing is so important. <laughs> you actually mentioned, it reminds me of something you mentioned about the woman who went out to eat at a restaurant on the anniversary of, yes, of uh, her husband's death, and that she went out and had the same things that they had 
50 years ago, I think it was. A turkey BLT. Right, a turkey BLT and a chocolate yes, ice cream soda. Yeah, I loved that. It was so lovely. And it reminded me about the concept of rituals and that yes. rituals are the things that help us get through those difficult moments. Yeah. What you're saying is, of course, there's going to be these moments that they're so hard to get through, mm-hmm. but the rituals we create help us. Yeah. I knew somebody that um, brought her husband's picture with her out to eat. Aww. And she put it and on the she table. Put it on the table. And certainly lighting candles at the table. And when people have dinner parties, whether it be a dinner party for Thanksgiving or other holidays, they always question, what am I going to do with the empty seat? Like the empty seat is really a big deal. And so the rituals that we create are very important (sighs) for that, whether we make their favorite foods, as we talked about, or whether we do something in the process um, of eating that brings that person to the table. Yeah. My my family is Jewish, and I'm not observant, Um, but... I have always found it really moving that you say the Kaddish three times a day and the Kaddish is the mourner's prayer. Yeah. Um, and you say it for, I think 10 months and the idea of three times a day that you say it, I mean, you say it with a meal Yeah. and it is because like it is the moment when you are probably in touch most with your life force or your own body. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of try, like try ritual, yes, you are in touch with theirs too. It's really special. Yeah. You know, the other thing that you mentioned in your article had to do something about sudden loss, how that's very, yes. a little bit different. Remind me again what you had said, the story that you told about sudden loss. Yeah, there, there's an artist named Jean Heifetz, and her, her uh, late husband, Yuri Yurovic, was a writer and, and has actually a book coming out, and he died really suddenly. I think he, I don't remember if he had a heart attack, but he, he was there and then he wasn't. Right. And um, she, she actually because they weren't preparing for his death, they had, uh, he's, he was from Latvia, and they had Latvian bread in their freezer and a bag of grapes that he was going like going to have for dessert that night. Yeah. And he died last November, and they're still in her mm-hmm. fridge. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, she, she said it was like Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I think that that is another element of this because when, when someone like as we were speaking out earlier when someone's in hospice they stop eating yeah. you, you, if you're living together your fridge empties right their physical presence in your house drains things are changing but I mean it's what jo- Joan Didion talked about she comes yes. home after yep. John Dunn dies and I think his yeah. scotch is still on the yep. table you know mm-hmm. yeah that I love that I have so many quotes from that book. and people in, yeah. in my notes it. right here <laughs> People that, leave oh it that god, way. The kanji. For, oh my god, the kanji! <laughs> yeah. But it's soft and warm and kanji. You read the year of mouthful. It's, soft, thinking, right? yeah. it's yeah. soft and it's something that like. Well, actually, that's another it's baby. Food. It's baby food. Yeah. yeah, I always eat kanji when I need. That's I'm not someone who really. If I'm in a bad way, I usually don't eat. I'm more of the like tequila and cigarettes <laughs> diet kind of person. But kanji, I do not make an exception. Yeah. But no, I love it. It's yeah. so warm and yeah. so nice. Yeah. And she actually, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Bobby, but. Uh, when she talks about that and about like her friend just bringing her something, you know, like you need to eat, like that really just struck me because you will in that kind of time and that kind of shock and crazy, like how did this just happen time? Yeah. Just not be able to think of nourishing yourself. And it is lovely for people to bring things to you. Yeah. Even if you don't necessarily need them, it's hard to know what to bring. You can't always nail it. Sometimes you're going to bring something that someone's going to throw in the garbage or let rot in their fridge, but 
cares? It's a way we it's can help kind, people, for sure. It's yeah. a kind gesture because it helps to not have to think so much. You're already thinking you can't so think. much. Yeah. Yeah. When exactly. my grandfather died, Jews bring regala, which are oh, yeah. cookies that oh, yeah. in my... We're no also one in Jews. My, yeah. yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, and my mom still can't eat regula. It makes her too sad. But Aww. she will always be grateful to our friend Janet Spitzer because she brought, like, a roast chicken from Key Food. Right. And I was seven. And I think I ate, like, the whole thing. Yeah. Because no one had fed me. You yeah. Know? And course. I think that bringing – that's – it just bringing – like, don't forget to eat is what exactly. I tell yeah. anyone I know now that when someone dies. My cousin just died a couple of weeks ago. Oh, so and sorry. Thank you. And it's it's been kind of the family's advice, just, like – have you eaten? Did you eat? Are it's you really eating? take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, I want to go back to that Pompeii metaphor <clears throat> because it's like frozen in time. And that's really <laughs> what happens. And with a sudden loss, the trauma freezes us in time. <laughs> so I, I love to tell the story. There was a movie in 2000 called Under the Sand with Charlotte Rampling. And it's a wonderful story about um, this woman who goes to the shore with her husband. It's part French. She goes to the shore with her husband and... She's lying down, asks him to put some lotion on her, and she falls asleep, and he goes into the water, and when she wakes up, he's gone. He's missing. So the amazing thing about this, it shows her a year of grief, mm-hmm. and every night, and every morning, noon and night, she wakes up, and she prepares the meal for both of them, and she sets the table for both of them, mm-hmm. she serves the food for both of them, mm-hmm. and she does this for a year, and her family and everybody around her are worried about her. They think that she's crazy. Yeah. But what the message of the movie is, is that she needs to do that. Just as the client, you were, the person you were talking about, left the grapes in the refrigerator and the yeah. bread in the refrigerator, yeah. we need to do it for a period of time. She wasn't crazy. After a year, she stopped needing to do that. Yeah. But in the beginning, that's what she needed to do. It's well, Scottish. It's true. And I, what I actually really liked about your article, and what I think maybe is the most valuable part of it, of the whole thing, which was mm. extremely valuable, Thank you. was the fact that like it humanizes exactly what you're just talking about it humanizes the insanity that you feel when you're in grief right right so like your article wasn't an expose on can you believe i mean of course not but like can you believe these these people are grieving is hard grieving (laughs) is crazy look at this person they're 10 ways grieving is hard (laughs) exactly grieving stinks no but it really (laughs) humanized it and and uh i think the takeaway at least for me and i think it and for a lot of folks was just that it's okay if you can't eat for a while or if you lose a bunch of weight or if you gain a bunch of weight or if you bring your husband's picture out or if you set the table for two people or if all you can eat is kanji, like it's all really okay and Mm -hmm. it's all really normal. Mm -hmm. Everything is normal. And that like there may never be, you may never go back to square one, right? And in fact, you definitely won't because it's totally different, but you might never, you might eat popcorn for dinner for the rest of, exactly, you don't need to. Yeah. And it's okay, and it sucks, and it sucks to be a seventh wheel, and it sucks to not get to enjoy the things you used to be with your partner, and it sucks to break down the supermarket, and it sucks to be in grief 10 years after your partner or your parent or your child dies. It sucks, but I think what the goal of this show, and I think my, something that I feel really passionately about, and I think you probably do too, is like it can suck. And it can be awful and it can be painful and it can also be okay. And just because mm-hmm. you've experienced a loss and you're like forever changed and your habits change and your eating habits change right. uh, and you feel pain, you can also be okay. And like, that's fine. It's interesting. There's a concept in grief about that. It's called the dual uh, model. And what it means is that we grieve and um, live at the same time. 
Yes. In the beginning, there's really just grief. But over time, little by little, we begin to grieve and live at the same time. We live with grief. Mm-hmm. That's what we learn to do. Yeah. But it really humanized, it really brought it to this really accessible way of looking at it being perfectly imperfect. And I really appreciated that about it. Yeah, because you. you didn't just tell a story about people. You you were part of it and um, you could tell that. You, know, Thank you could you. really tell. And also you, uh, the fact that you interviewed so many people, it was so much about their stories. It wasn't about mm. them. It was with them. Yeah. I really appreciated that. That's incredibly yeah. kind. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of another concept, um, the whole thought of uh, the culinary program. Mm-hmm. Um, Victor Frankl, who's a very um, yeah. well-known writer and psychotherapist, he wrote A Man's Search for Meaning, and he mm-hmm. was a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. I, I quote him all the time. Um, and he, while he was in concentration camp, he wrote a document. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he obviously had no pen, so he wrote it in his head. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some very important concepts in it. One of them was survival is a community event. Mm-hmm. And that is really what these workshops are about. Yes. So that together, and that's what support groups are about, mm-hmm. together we can survive things that seem so impossible. Yeah, and I, I mean, the the line I ended the piece with is a paraphrase of something I heard so much that evening, which is, you need to eat to live, and you need to go on living. Right. Yeah, that's right. And you need each other to do it, is yeah. I guess the, the third clause in that. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, the other thing Viktor Frankl talked about is meaning, and that's one of the other tasks of grief, is right. finding new meaning, because in the beginning, you're not so sure you want to live. Yeah. So yeah. It, it over time, and people help you do this, you begin to find new meaning. Mm -hmm. And for some people, food, like I know for us, (laughs) food is part of the new meaning that we begin to find again. Um, I have a client I recently worked with who I had suggested to her that it was really important to invite some friends over for dinner and to have a dinner party. It had been two and a half years, I think, since Mm -hmm. her husband had died. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't imagine because her refrigerator is empty now and she hasn't cooked in two and a half years. But I said to her, it's going to bring life back into your house. Yeah. It's going to bring community back into yeah, your life. Yeah. So doing it in her house, she would go out to dinner with friends, but she would never have any friends come over. Oh. So making that dinner party, mm-hmm. and it was it was hard, she said, but we used to do this together. And he would help me to have, he'd set the table while I, right. I, and so it was a process of her to do that, to try to do it all by herself. Yeah. But she did, and it was, mm-hmm. it helped her feel so much better. That's great. This was an amazing conversation, and I just want to end with this very small Joan Didion quote is that in the year of magical thinking, she says, out, grief turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it. And I think yeah. that was very evident in what you wrote and what, you know, I think a lot of people feel you can anticipate it. You don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes it's a lot worse. Sometimes it's a lot easier. It really just is so unknown. And Thank you for writing something that Thank just helped making it, me. yeah, that made it like, t- you know, uh, more br- bringing light to it, a really important topic. And keep it up. Maybe we can do some other things together because your interest in this and your writing, you never know where that would be where so things fun. go. Yeah, it'd be so cool. Thank yeah. you so much for being our guest today. Can you Thank just you. tell uh, the listeners where we can, if you have anything you want to plug, where we can find you? Do you oh, um, I'm Amelia Nirenberg, and you can Google me with NY Times, and there I am. Awesome. Yeah. Your writing is beautiful. I read a lot of your other pieces that you've written Thank for you. the Times. I mean, I just have to say I'm so impressed. You're a young woman, and you have this amazing job writing for the New York Times. It's so impressive and so cool, and I just 
Thank you. I obviously see you going so far in your <laughs> career. It's so cool. It's so inspiring. It's really great. You know, it's really, really cool. Sensitive and a lot of insight. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for doing the best. Oh my gosh. And what, best. About, and what about that foie gras in uh, New York? Oh my God. <laughs> That's our next episode. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks so much, Amelia. Thank you. Bobby, what an episode. Oh. What'd you think? I was so moved because I work with bereaved spouses all the time. Yeah. And I thought that Amelia's writing of the article was fantastic. It was um, comprehensive. It was deep and sensitive. And for somebody that hadn't really been exposed to bereavement and bereaved widows, I think she did an incredible job. I agree, actually. That was my comment too is that I kind of you know we are interviewing all different kinds of folks on this and with experiences from grief ranging to really intimate to looking at it to breakups to heartbreak to death to being in the uh, emergency first responders field so I really thought her take was very interesting as someone who was a researcher of grief. Not that she hadn't experienced any grief in her life, but being a researcher of grief in a way. Well, it was the, also one of her, I believe, one of her first projects in researching yeah, grief. Yeah, it was really yeah. fascinating. And uh, I thought she was just really brilliant and very eloquent and very intelligent. And I always, I have a lot of respect for people who are just intelligent in that way. Absolutely. You know, writers yep. and readers and... Uh, and scholars and people who are, I don't know, I just, I really, I really liked her. I thought it was a great episode. So she talked about um, her grandfather loving burnt cookies. And so I kind of connected with that. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And it, it prompted me to do a little research about why people love burnt food. And so I started by researching something called the Maillard reaction. Now, Matt just told me when I was in here, I came and I said, has anyone ever heard of the Maillard reaction? Because it's spelled M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D. And as some of you listeners might know, I've inherited a trait from my mom, which is called mispronunciation of Which I inherited from my Yugoslavian mother. (laughs) Okay, well, you have a better excuse than I do. I think maybe I'm just lazy. Um, so Matt says it's called my yard, like my yard, but if you were a little bit drunk, so it's called the my yard reaction and it's named after a French chemist, Louise Camille Maillard, who first described it in 1912 while attempting to reproduce biological protein synthesis. In 1912, Maillard published a paper describing the reaction between amino acids and sugars at elevated temperatures. And in 1953, chemist John E. Hodge with the U.S. Department of Agriculture established a mechanism for the Maillard reaction. So basically, I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit of something from uh, the Times and from Modernist Cuisine. But the Maillard reaction is basically what you get when you burn or char or sear or grill or caramelize any food, which is opposed to like boiling something right or sous viding it it's when you're cooking something how it basically caramelizes so that means like burnt toast that means a grilled steak that means burnt sugar making caramel searing anything um you know making a cinnamon bun and glazing the sugar so that's a really enticing thing obviously about food it's such a huge part of what becomes compelling about food and it is more compelling for certain people than it is for others now i also wanted to find out if this was something that certain people like for a certain reason. I think that's 
I couldn't find that, right? So, like, there's scientific evidence to support why certain people don't like cilantro, right? There's certain kinds of things that are really explainable. I couldn't find any research. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But in my research, I couldn't find anything that that was concrete as to, like, why some people like these flavors more than others. Other than maybe it just being, you know, a familial thing. Like, oh, my mom made this, and so I like this. And Your grandmother, my mother, loved burnt toast. Yeah. And I grew up, I love burnt toast. Yeah, so do I. And my husband, Rob, is very conscious of things that he puts in his body, and yeah. he sees it as carbon. And he it scrapes is. off every single bit. And I take the ends of the burnt toast, and that's my favorite he part. He scrapes his burnt scrapes onto every... your toast. <laughs> He scrapes it when you you uh, put it in your coffee and stir it in. Not exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I also love burnt toast because I remember that you like it and grandma likes it. I even like the smell. Yeah, I like it too. Um, I'm curious to why that is, but I like burnt things in general. It's crispy. It's also, here's the thing, it's also a richness of flavor, right? And so Rob, while he's an amazing person and definitely goes along with our culinary agenda, doesn't necessarily have this like innate familial you know did he didn't come up with being like really enticed by like rich flavors well the intensity it's not even just rich you talk about the intensity of flavor right and it's also has to just do with like i don't know i mean i guess there's probably plenty of people who aren't super into food who like burnt toast too but it's also liking bitters in a drink some people he doesn't like bitters strong flavors right and and bitter right as a flavor is also a thing so I do think that there's tests that are done as to whether some people like, you know, sweet, sour, bitter, yeah. salty, you know, hot, spicy. I we like all everything. <laughs> I do. I like sweet. I like bitter. I like bittersweet. I like salty and sweet. I like really spicy. There's really no flavor that I don't like. That's you why you really do what like, you do. You don't really like spice, like hot, hot and spicy, or it's just not... I know it's not great for your body, but it's it, not do great you also for my body, like so I it? stop. It's not. I'm not drawn to it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so according to an article in Modernist Cuisine, uh, the description of the Maillard reaction is a chemical reaction between amino acids and reducing sugars that gives brown food a distinctive browned food a distinctive pl- flavor. Um, what begins as a simple reaction between amino acids and sugar quickly becomes complicated. The molecules produced keep reacting in an ever more complex way that generate literally hundreds of various molecules. Most of these new molecules are produced in an incredibly, uh, in incredibly minute quantities, but that doesn't mean they're unimportant. The Maillard reaction, or its absence, distinguishes flavors of boiled, poached, or steamed food from the flavors of the same foods that have been grilled, roasted, or otherwise cooked at temperatures high enough to dehydrate the surface rapidly high temperature cooking speeds up the maillard reaction because heat both uh because heat both increases the increases the rate of chemical reactions and accelerates the evaporation of water as the food dries concentration of reactant compound increasingly uh, increases and the temperature climbs more rapidly yeah i just thought that was interesting so again that's from modernist cuisine uh ripped from the headlines that is a quote from them um uh tajal rao from the Times, uh, wrote an article called Charred, Brown, Blackened, The Lore of Burned Food. And it was a really interesting article, and they um, interviewed like a ton of different chefs in New York um, and, and out of New York about, uh, you know, their cooking. One, one gentleman was making a mole um, and was explaining the importance of, you know, charring the ingredients in that. 
Um, and in the article, it also did talk about the concerns associated with eating burnt food, which is carcinogens. And there's been a lot of talk of that. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of a person who lives my life generally in moderation. I don't go full on all the way with things, but I allow myself some things I know are bad for me sometimes because A, I think it's kind of fine and B, I don't know, it could all end at any minute and I'm not trying to just prepare myself for the most perfect life ever. This is my one shot. So if I'm going to, you know what I mean? Okay. Go for it. I think you're kind of the same way too. Burn it up. Right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So in the article though, one thing that really stood out to me is that uh, they interviewed a a woman named Jennifer uh, McLan and she's the author of a cookbook called Bitter, A Taste of the World's Most Dangerous Flavor. And she developed a recipe for a toast soup based on a French country dish that stretches leftover bread into a meal. Um, and I was so compelled by this recipe. I have to make it. And I'm not a recipe follower. You know that. I mean, I get inspired by foods and then want to make them. But this recipe sounded so incredible. I'm going to tell you what it is. Um, so she starts with a version. So it's basically a burnt toast soup. So she starts with a, a bacon infused chicken stock and then adds bread that's been carbonized and burnt. Um, not like totally burnt to a crisp where it's like a charcoal brick, but just burnt toast. Um, and then she adds, uh, hot milk and mustard. So this is the actual recipe. Um, it's bacon, chicken stock, sourdough bread that's been charred, hot milk, Dijon mustard, vinegar from a jar of cornichons and butter (laughs) and it's basically all boiled together and then pureed wow it does most delicious thing i know you like pickle soup so i'm sure you were definitely attracted by the pickle soup i mean that's a whole nother episode pickle soup is delicious right um have you ever had it it has like sauerkraut and pickles and cream oh my god it's the most amazing thing ever. so what are your favorite burnt foods well i before the whole burnt carrot trend really took off, I'd say we were doing a lot of burnt foods at Percy. Um, I mean, I love like roasted red peppers, which are well, a great ingredient. Um, we do used to do a lot of burnt carrots and a lot of burnt vegetables in general. I mean, we would do like burnt asparagus, tartars. We would burn everything. Oh, I <laughs> really, and sometimes not on purpose. Right. Um, I love burnt, uh, carrots. I really love grilled octopus. That's like a particular favorite flavor of mine and grilled shrimp like really charred shrimp and you can kind of eat the head and the shell and all that. Right. How about marshmallows? I love uh, marshmallows. I mean, that's, we maybe... could, we could do a, a assessment whether who likes it burnt and who doesn't. Cause some people just oh, very gently Those people cook are it. not for me. You got to burn it and then rip that off yeah. and burn it again and exactly. rip it off. Of course. Exactly. Of course. I'm sorry. As you know, I'm currently, as we're recording this single, and I'll know that, like, when I've met my perfect person. It, I could have met the perfect person, and we could be, like, really happy, and everything's going great. And then there are marshmallows. It's just, a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. Because yeah. I know that means that person doesn't have the appropriate amount of zest for life. So just okay, just keep that. Anybody interested in dating me, just know they're going to have to burn your marshmallow. I eat, like, one marshmallow every five years, so I'm just and kidding. We are now sitting in the studio at Roberta's and yeah. I'm sitting here staring at people eating wonderful pizza yeah. and the bottom of the pizza is slightly burnt. Yeah, it's charred because they cook it in the hot oven and there's a lot of char. Totally. Um, pretzels, 
are basically burnt like a soft pretzel if you think about it i mean the outside is coated in lime but it's so dark and so charred on the outside that's almost like a, that's a burnt flavor well in a box of crackers we like to eat vans you know yeah. these gluten-free crackers i always look for the burnt ones there's oh, a yeah. few burnt ones yeah yeah and totally. of course rob doesn't like those so i get all the burnt that's perfect you guys are made for each other um i have a really good burnt story oh yes please i have a great story would love to so as you know um before i was a bereavement psychotherapist I was a chef, mm-hmm. and I owned with your dad a business called Love and Oven. And of course, over the holidays, it was a catering business, and we had a retail storefront. And during the holidays, we worked really, really hard. And as you can imagine, mm-hmm. we had big orders going up, big weddings, and all kinds of things going on. So it came to New Year's, and we made all our New Year's Eve food, sent it out, and we went home and we said, you know something, tomorrow's New Year's Day. Let's make a really beautiful roast, you know, gorgeous roast in the oven. Let's put it in. Let's take a little rest, have a glass of wine. So we put the roast in, had a glass of wine, and woke up 14 hours later. No. Well, I have to tell you, in the oven was this little teeny hard (laughs) charcoal briquette. (laughs) And it was a good representation of the food business, the food industry. That's all we could do. That's the best we could do is make a briquette. No way. It was too burnt. (laughs) Too burnt even for you. That must have been pretty burnt. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's a little bit about burnt food that I thought was kind of interesting. And um, again, Amelia was really just great. Such an interesting person, uh, a young woman and just so brilliant. I love, I mentioned this on the show, I just really love to see people who are young and uh, doing it and working hard and being so capable and smart. It makes me excited to see what else they'll do. I was thinking the same thing. I'd like to follow her and see the other articles that she writes because she's very deep. She's great. Yeah. An amazing, what an accomplishment to be a writer for the New York Times. I don't know how old she is, but she seemed young to me. And I was just impressed. I would have been impressed with her at any age. But that just added to me to our cachet because it really gave me, I was excited about her future and and about her current. And Amelia, thank you so much for your generosity in sharing with us. Really like an open person and an interested person, right? Like just, I think journalists in general though, right? That's the thing that makes journalists journalists is that they are really interested in life and interested in other people's stories um as as are we and we we share that i guess with her um so amelia thank you so much bobby thank you should we go burn some food or eat some burnt food? let's eat some burnt food okay okay perfect love you love you bye thank you so much for joining us for processing we realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.